that's the vision and mission I carry on, whether it's uh, your bed, your furniture, the way your door opens and closes. I want to make people feel good. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to the legendary Cloda. Born in 1940, Cloda grew up in the Irish countryside in what was once Oscar Wilde's home. She embarked on her first career chapter as a fashion designer, when at the young age of 17, she opened a couture salon in Dublin. She jokes that in the 1970s, she changed husbands, countries, and careers, when, after having three children, achieving global success in the fashion industry, and getting a hard-won divorce, she moved to Spain, remarried, and found her true calling as an interior designer. She moved countries again in the 1980s, setting up her own studio in New York City. Now, having been a design powerhouse for over five decades, she's completed projects all over the world, including multifamily residences, hotels, spas, yachts, private jets, and more. A renowned pioneer of sustainable and biophilic design, she's always cared most about how her spaces make people feel. And as such, she's earned a reputation for being somewhat of a healer by way of design. And she's been vegan since the 80s. As the subject of two separate documentaries, she's led a remarkable life, full of ups, downs, twists, turns, and near-death experiences. It's a wild ride, full of grit, heart, wisdom, and humor. Here's Cloda. My name is Cloda. I live upstate New York, and I work in Manhattan. I'm a multifaceted designer, not an interior designer. I design anything that's handed to me to design. (laughs) When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That is a special, special talent. Very fluid. So let's talk about how you got to be this multifaceted designer. And to do that, I would love to go all the way back to the formative years. Can you talk to me about your childhood in the West of Ireland? I was born in the West of Ireland, in County Mayo, uh, brought up in Oscar Wilde's country home, Moitura House, on the banks of Loch Corrib. I had an interesting family. There were actually, in the end, three children. I'm the youngest. Uh, from a mother who actually was quite avant-garde in her way because she drove a sports car, one of the first women actually to drive in Ireland. She had an art show 
and she rode fast horses side saddle in cross-country competitions. This was before I was born. She did all these things. No, but by the time I came along, she was actually a very different person. Was her avant-garde spirit an inspiration to you? Well, I didn't know she was avant-garde until I, I was much older. <laughs> no, she, was, <laughs> she had settled down. <laughs> she, had, she had really settled down, yes. She was very quiet. And my father really did nothing very much at all. He wasn't, didn't have a job or anything like that. We were basically downwardly mobile, country gentle people. Okay. Um, I don't have a lot of that. I don't have a lot of reference <laughs> for that in my life. <laughs> no, most people don't. My father bred dogs. He had what they call a gentleman's farm. We would row out to on La Carib to an island and have a picnic with a row of dogs swimming behind us with their noses making V's on the water. We had some cows and we had neighbors and we're near near Ashford Castle, which is one of the most beautiful castles in Ireland. We used to go over there sometimes as a huge treat. And then because we were down Ridley Mobile, we changed homes and went to a smaller one in Sligo. That's when my when my first time to going to school. In living in Oscar Wilde's country home, did you sense the history? Did you feel his presence? I was too small to feel Oscar's presence, but I felt it later because my brother and sister were older and my brother gave me a book about the epigrams of Oscar Wilde when I was about eight, I think. And uh, I have lived on his quotes for the rest of my (laughs) life. I collect quotes like other people collect jewelry and stuff like that even have a quote wall in our studio. I'm very inspired by words. Always been inspired by words. So what kinds of things captured your youthful imagination? I was a very wild child, not on drugs or anything like that, just wandering around the woods and, and very much on my own. I didn't have any friends until until we actually went to Sligo when I was sent to school. How old were you when that happened? I think eight. It's a long time to be on your own in the woods. <laughs> the the woods actually brought me so much. The changing light and shadow, the mossy floors, the changing light in Ireland, you know, the sheen on the horses and the, and the cows, you know. I got my first horse in Sligo. I didn't get a horse. I actually adopted a horse in a field who was grazing there. And and just jumped on his back. <laughs> that sounds amazing. It also sounds to me, growing up like that, that you would have become very attuned to the cycles of nature and just the sort of natural rhythms of the earth. Maybe more so than somebody who was brought up in a more more sort of noisy city type of area. Oh, very much so. I I didn't wear shoes the summer. My mother would yell at me, so I'd take them off when I was out of sight. So I, I was doing early earthing, you might say, right? There have little patches now where you can earth. <laughs> and the seasons were very important to me. And we also, roaming around the fields, you found wild blackberries and wild raspberries and nuts and stuff like that. I mean, I was an early forager, you might say. And then my father had his organic garden. If you even mentioned the word chemical, he went up in smoke. So uh, I was I was also very early green. <laughs> ah, okay. This is all this is all checking out in the research I did on you. <laughs> Tell me about your teenage years. You have this avant garde mother, but you didn't really know she was avant garde. 
you described your family as downwardly mobile and you as a bit feral. I'm wondering if you had a mind of your own, if you had a rebellious streak, if your creativity was manifesting. When I went went to my first school in, in Sligo, I was a pretty defiant kid. Because when they moved me from uh, the class, from from kindergarten to the first class, they said I was, I was the youngest kid in the class and they wouldn't move me. So I rebelled. I stormed home and, and said I wouldn't go back to school anymore. <laughs> I walked the whole way home. And in the end, the headmaster came out and, and apologized to me. So I went back. <laughs> I always remember his name was Mr. Blackburn. He must have been about 10 feet high to me, but probably over six feet. I absolutely rebelled. Wow. Leadership skills were getting forged early on. <laughs> well, rebellion, certainly. <laughs> Since I was the smallest child, it's not fair or wait for me. My little days wouldn't keep up. When you did rebel like this, did you have the backup of your parents? Did you feel supported? Well, my mother, if I had one of my it's not fair rages and slam the bedroom door, would make make toast and tea and leave it outside the door, scones to mollify me through food like a little dog. (laughs) 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 But uh, they didn't know how to talk to me, no. They were both brought up in highly non-communicative households. And the story behind it, and the reason why nobody talked that much, is that uh, my father actually eloped with his son's fiance. They got got cut off from both their families. And uh, (laughs) we were the children of of that. So there was some scandal underscoring the whole family unit. But we didn't know that, not until a lot later. So does that mean you were sort of disconnected then from your extended family? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so you also had a pretty epic horseback riding accident in your teenage years, and you broke your back in three places, and it laid you up in bed for months. I'm interested in this time in your life. I mean, it's usually pretty pivotal when someone faces their own mortality like that at a young age. But also, I know this is also a time when you kind of made a choice about your future. So can you talk to me about this time? Yeah, I actually was a child who got into horrible accidents even before that. I cut my wrist when I was about five. It fell on a glass bowl, and my nanny left me bleeding. She was so frightened, and I nearly bled out. I had a burst appendix when I was three and nearly died. (laughs) My father gave me a horse, and he was saddle shy. I mean, he didn't like a saddle being put on him. And I was supposed to lunge him when I came home from boarding school. And um, I didn't. I got up on him, put the saddle on and got up. And he just flew and started bucking like you've you've seen in the rodeos. And he actually snapped the leather straps that hold the girth to the saddle. And the saddle and I flew onto hard ground. And I was lying there. I don't know if you've ever had the breath knocked out of your body. You kind of can't breathe. I was lying there and there was a kind of... Seer, I suppose you could call him, called Old John, who used to wander around the country fields with give you jars of nettle things and stuff if you were sick. And he came along when I was lying on the ground and he looked down at me, not even offering to help me to get up. He said, if you live till you're 24, you might die at 24. You will be a healer, but not in the medical sense. And with that, he actually walked off. <laughs> no. And I, 
managed to get myself up somehow and crawl down to the house. That always lives on my mind. What a prophecy. That is wild. And you had never met this person before. Oh, I had. I'd seen him wandering around the fields and sometimes come to the house with uh, yellow liquids from my mother, you know, who had problems with her health. But I'd never talked to him. But he just stood and looked down at me. He said that. And it was, it was really quite a strange moment for me. Did it resonate? Did it ring true? Did you have some sort of knowing that it was accurate? Or did it worry you that you were going to die at 24? Well, yeah, the, the dying at 24 resonated plenty. And I married my first husband when I was 21. But I told him, you know, I said, you may lose me at 24. <laughs> so when my, my 24th birthday came up, <laughs> I was kind of wondering. <laughs> but as you can hear in the sea, I'm right here. With this potential short time span left to live, do you think you maximized the life you did have? Did it put some urgency into your decisions? Well, he said if I didn't die at 24, I'd live a quite a long life. But um, I had previous accidents. I've always felt life is tenuous and you should use every minute. While you were laid up, you saw an ad in the Irish Times that said, why not be a dress designer? And you thought to yourself, why not? So you set your sights on becoming a fashion designer, but you also knew this would be a really controversial choice in your family. My father's brother, who was, was still talking to the family, had more degrees than anybody else in the world in Trinity College, Dublin. So my father had decided that since I was a Latin, studying Latin and was very good at mathematics, that I would become a professor in classics and mathematics in Trinity College, like Uncle Charlie. And he decided what my brother would be and my sister would be. Our careers were mapped out. None of us did. <laughs> None of us followed. So um, I was lying on my back, and my mother decided to keep me at home rather than put me in a hospital for six, five months. I saw this, the, the Irish Times was the only newspaper we were allowed to read. Our reading was very edited also. And I was lying on my back, and I saw an ad saying, why not be a fashion designer? And I don't know why, but I thought, why not? Maybe it's my motto, why not, amongst others. <laughs> <laughs> that was the spark, but you still have to go through with what you know is going to be a controversial decision, defying your father's map for your career, and maybe going into a career that he's not as excited about. How did you sort of rally your motivation to rebel once again? Well, what happened was that uh, I had to go in and tell him. He was always seated, seated at a roll-top desk, <laughs> one thing I do remember. And when I told him, he said, nobody in our family has ever gone into trade, saying trade in capital letters. <laughs> no. Ah, so it was a class thing. Oh, totally, yes, totally. I, I don't want to see or hear from you again if you're going to go on with that. Oh, Wow. That's a rejection. That must have hurt. Well, I was sort of already fairly immune. My mother, on the contrary, said, I'll help you. She said, I'll give you some money and we'll help to rent you a, a flat in Dublin. See how you get on. And the ad was from the Grafton Academy of Dress Design. So and they were offering a compressed course. And she said, I'll pay for that and I'll give you some money. 
she gave me 400 pounds and uh, off I went. Knowing that you were to be estranged from your father forevermore? Knowing that I needed, that he didn't really want to see me again. But then what happened was, when mm. I had my first fashion show, it was in the Irish Times yes, <laughs> with, a nice he- were- with a nice headline, and suddenly I was back home again. Oh, you were welcomed once you were acknowledged by the exactly, Irish Times. Exactly. You did find success in fashion almost immediately. Did you also find that your creative passion was ignited and you enjoyed the process of garment construction and draping and textile choices and all the science and artistry of fashion? Oh, I loved it. And I opened my, my tiny atelier with the courage born of total ignorance no idea what I was getting into. I mean, it was so bad that when my bank manager called and asked to see my books, I said, Mr. Mooney, why do you want to know what I'm reading? (laughs) (laughs) Because money was not spoken about in our family. (laughs) Did Mr. Mooney set you straight? Did he help you? He set me straight. He was very kindly. And you're 17 years old at this time. I'm 17, yeah. And the first client who walked up the stairs because I'd hung out my shingle, said, I'd like to meet the designer. I, I want, to, want to commission an, an overcoat. And I said, I am the designer. And she said, you look very young. I, How old are you? I said, 17. There's a long pause, and she said, that's too young. I'll come back when you're a little older and have some experience. Uh, and with that, oh. she walked down the stairs, leaving me, knowing that I would never tell anybody my age ever again, because I'd either be too young or too old. <laughs> and she came back. She did come back. She did? Yes. I got a lot more publicity. She, she, she came back. I made her an amazing white mohair coat, made her a ball gown, <laughs> and we laughed about it. She came back about three years later. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive They've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. 
On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So starting off so young and self-admittedly naive, I guess, about running a business. How about ignorant? <laughs> <laughs> what do you attribute your entrepreneurial spirit to and your business acumen? Because, you know, it wasn't just sheer creative genius. I'm sure there was a fair amount of that and hard work. But you did achieve quite a bit of international success and acclaim. And that means you have to not go out of business. Well, what happened was actually at my first fashion show, there were some buyers in from the States and they'd heard about me and my fashion show. It was a fundraiser for the Irish Cancer Society in a very smart hotel. They ferreted me out 
and gave me some business. So I started to start to export, and the Irish Export Board at that point was very supportive and, and helped me. When they had the shows in New York, they shot me over, paid some supplementary money to the designers. And then, of course, we helped exports because we used Irish tweeds and Irish linens. That sounds like a pretty sweet relationship. So you got wind in your sales. Right. And then you got deposits from your, uh, on, the, on the orders, on the, on the purchasing. Lord & Taylor, Bonwitz, all the uh, big department stores. Then we exported to Australia, England, all over. It happened very fast, actually. It was nice. Were you growing your studio as well, like hiring employees? and? Yeah, I had employees and I had a couple of employees immediately. Then I had a sewing team. But also I uh, licensed to a tweed company from Germany. The, the suits were made in, in Ireland to a jersey knit company. During this chapter of your career, when you were growing your fashion design business and brand, you also married and had three children. That's right. So that's a lot. And while your children buoyed your spirit, your marriage started to feel like a trap. You know, I know from your documentary, you described this time in Irish history as leaving women very disadvantaged when it came to divorce law. No, there wasn't divorce law. So you had very few options for sort of reclaiming your life in a way that also allowed you to retain custody. This was a hard decision. But... You worked it out and got a legal separation. You've said in the 70s that you changed husbands, countries, and careers. That's exactly what I did. That's big. And it also is the precursor to you finding your calling as a multifaceted designer of not just fashion, but interior spaces, as you say, anything that anybody puts in front of you. I wonder if you can talk to me about this really pivotal time in your life. I wanted to put my unhappiness behind me, so I had a lot of publicity because being very young and being Irish, it really helped for publicity internationally, and presumably the clothes were reasonably good too. So I had a huge trunk full of press clippings and magazines and places where I'd appeared in. And when I decided to leave Ireland, when I got my legal separation, which meant I could have joined custody of the children, there was a store warehouse where they stored, you know, furniture and so on. And I had this huge trunk there. And I went to the warehouse and I said to the guys, "We just take the trunk out, please, into the garden." And uh, I said, "You have a match." And I flambéed all my press clippings and everything. It went up in flames, and it felt great. But <laughs> no. some people burned their boats. I burned my publicity. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you need to shed that? I don't know. Could have asked me then, but I might have known. I don't know now, but it felt great. It still feels great, yeah. So what happened after that? You you made a clean break, it sounds like, both spiritually and geographically with your fashion career and your ex-husband. Where did you go from there, and how did you find your gifts as an interior designer? Well, what happened was my husband had a house in Spain. This is your second husband, Daniel. Yes, because we got married and we had, he had a house in Spain and he also had an apartment in New York. And so I, I went to New York first and the boys joined us. We had a, a, a townhouse 
we had a good time in New York, but Dan- Danielle decided what he really wanted to do was go to Spain, and I had nothing holding me in New York. I had had my last fashion show in Ireland, which, of course, was all black. What else would it be? (laughs) (laughs) That last fashion show was like burning the trunk. There was a a, a little element of mourning, I suppose, in it, too. It sounds like it. A little bit of dark humor, a little bit of grief, a little bit of mourning. uh, My kids are very funny, and we all laugh a lot, so... So it can't take anything too seriously. My husband decided he wanted to stop his career, which he was his screenwriter, and go to live in Spain. So I said, okay. And we found a townhouse in this old city, Almeria. It's one of the last Moorish outposts of Spain with the huge Alcazaba and so on. We bought a, a, a townhouse and we, we found an architect and I said to Daniel, I don't speak a word of Spanish because he's multilingual and it was embarrassing. And uh, I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take care of the house and you go up doing what you're doing. And I'll try to learn Spanish while I'm doing it. So that's what I did. And I found the architect. He didn't know how people live. <laughs> he was all about architecture and not about living and I kept saying Antonio this and you can't do that and no you can't put the kitchen at the end of that room you can't walk through the living room to get to the from the dining room to get to the kitchen stuff like that and I kept drawing over his drawings and then when the time came we were ready to move in I was literally standing in the living room and these huge shutters were open on the old square and the birds were singing outside Side and a light came in and hit my shoulder, and I and I I realized what I wanted to be. You have had some real moments of uh, life-defining clarity. I had no doubt in my mind. Wow! And so I said when he came back, I said I need the place that's on the street, the the, the studio that's on the street or, or retail space. I want that, and I'm going to start a design business. Hot damn. So I'm going to ask you, you're older than 24 at this point. So you're safely assured that you're going to live a long life? I'm, yes, I'm older than 24. No, the 24 happened with my first husband. I'm already early 30s. Why do you think you have so many near-death experiences? I don't know. Somebody like... was trying to tell me something. Maybe it's the spirit world trying to commune with you. I don't for know. A brief I, moment. I, I've, I've, I've actually left my body and looked at myself. Have you? Yes. Yeah. And that actually is very informative. It's very immediate. You should do everything that's good now. Don't think about it, doing it next week. When you left your body and looked at yourself, what was your consciousness like? Did you feel really cognizant? Yeah. It was lovely. It was very, very nice. And Upon recovery, were you able to maintain the sort of wisdom that you you gleaned in those moments? Yeah, it's the same wisdom every time that life is very frail. How many of the out-of-body experiences have you had? Five. Five? Cloda! But But they were great when I came back. I'm just thinking that you really are living this human life with like one foot in the spirit world. Or as the Irish say, uh, one foot in the grave and one on a banana skin. (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's interesting that you've sort of moved into these different spaces of consciousness so frequently through accidents. I wonder if you were going to decide that there was some greater purpose to you having these 
near-death experiences? What would you... That's just what I said, that that uh, life is, is very brief, and uh, one should make the absolute best of it and give give everything you have to make other people's lives better. So backing up a little bit, when you passed the 24 mark with your first husband, and you knew you were going to live a long life, did that also escalate the sort of feeling of being trapped? Once I got over 24, I didn't think about how long I'd live. I just did, I got over that thought. The 24, I must admit, the, the night before my 24th birthday, I was thinking, is this it? <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you throw up your shingle as, a, as an interior designer in Spain, still learning Spanish. I didn't say interior design, I said design. Design. Okay, you were deliberately agnostic. Exactly. So what were the first few projects like? And how quickly did you get your rhythm and feel your confidence in this new area of practice? Well, the first thing that happened was I'd hung up my shingle. This happened very much the same like as when I was in fashion. There was a ring on the doorbell of the house. And I went down, there's this gorgeous Spanish guy standing there. And he said, are you the English designer? I heard about you. And I said, no, I'm the Irish designer. And he said, well, that's close enough. And I had enough, he actually spoke English. He said, would you do my English bar, you know, in, in Roquetas de Mar, which was about 40 minutes drive away? And I said, of course. And he said, well, can you come down tomorrow? Yes, I can. And then I went upstairs. My husband was upstairs. And I said, I think I'm out of my freaking mind. <laughs> and he said, just do it. So the imposter syndrome was sitting on my left shoulder during this. But I did get into the car and go down and see the bar and decide what to do with it. And the architect liked me and he gave me one of his houses to do and kind of went from there. I've always felt that I should hire people who are better than myself because I realize I'm, I'm very untaught. You know, I've had no real formal training in anything, just my few weeks pattern cutting design, you know, and the Grafton Academy before I opened my fashion business, but that was weeks. So uh, the imposter syndrome tends to sit on my shoulder and say, are you really up for this? (laughs) But then my t-shirt says, why not? Has the imposter syndrome gone away now that you're you're 50 years into it? You've clearly proven yourself. No, it never goes away. The imposter syndrome is terrific because it sits on my shoulder and says, "You, each thing you do, you have to be better than the last thing you did. We really work incredibly hard to make sure that every aspect of design is addressed in everything we do. Well, so that sounds like it not only keeps you on your toes in terms of getting better and better and better, but it also keeps you hiring really high standard individuals on your team. If your policy is to hire people who are better at something than you are, well, they're better, probably um, better at everything. But they, I have an incredible—I <laughs> have an incredible team. I have the most incredible team. That is amazing, and I'm I'm really happy to hear that. And we all know that doing the volume and the scale of projects that you're doing, you can't possibly do it alone. But the way one cultivates a culture and a team and sort of mutual success for everyone is a really important part of the practice. And it sounds like you feel that way too. Well, also, they, they're my teachers in a sense. The first architect I hired in Spain, she was taking a year off from Liverpool University. She was studying in environmental and solar and wind energy. I mean, literally the first person who sat down at a table with me to discuss design. I think the first time I used the scale rule was with her there. 
the universe has brought you some amazing people. It really has. So you're you're now you've been in this chapter of your career for over 50 years and your practice is global in reach with projects all over the world and very broad in scope in terms of the types of projects and objects and products and spaces that you do multifamily residences, hotels, spas, yachts, private jets. You can tell me more. I'm sh- I'm sure there's even more than that. I'm wondering after all of this under your belt now, what has remained consistent and what would you say has evolved? The consistent thing is as I'm dealing with people and people have the same senses, affections, passions, right? <laughs> no, no. Uh, people, the humanity. You, humanity. <laughs> humanity has certain needs and that hasn't changed. So when I was in fashion, I was very careful when I was designing my clothes, that the clothes moved carefully with people that were comfortable to sit in. They didn't sit down and it was too tight or a skirt or something like that. And I did a traveling wardrobe for the wife of the president of Ireland and she went to Africa, you know, into great heat and I studied what she could wear that would make her most comfortable. And that's the vision and mission I carry on, whether it's uh, your bed, your furniture, the way your door opens and closes. I want to make people feel good. That makes a lot of sense. And that's the nicest thing somebody can say to me when they move into their place or move into the multifamily residence that I see people are looking happy and using things the way they should be used. Because it means they're in rhythm. They're they're feeling... At one with the space. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We work with all the senses. Your senses inform your emotions. So we we check all the senses and we hope they feel well in our spaces, (laughs) balanced and happy. They can breathe easily. It's very important. It's very, very important. So I appreciate that about your philosophy and your practice. What would you say has evolved I'm wondering if there is anything you found you were getting into that you had to shed or that you had to actively stop doing, or if there's some aspect of your own talent that was uncovered that you didn't know you had. Maybe a talent to be bossy. (laughs) When I got my first big job here, you know, it was, uh, I remember sitting in a conference room with 20 people, men in suits, and I realized I couldn't be sucking my thumb there and being shy. (laughs) So I learned that I could speak up. (laughs) I like it. Okay, I would love for you to help me understand your creative process. I'm fascinated by what you've talked about already about how you make sure to appeal to all of the senses and make sure to design emotional comfort into the spaces. You've said that you've always been a champion of techniques like feng shui, chromotherapy, biogeometry, biophilia, which I think is wonderful. You really are a healer, just not in the medical sense. Your modality is design. So can you get granular on that with me? So what does the step-by-step start with in terms of implementing all of this? Well, it depends what it is, because we also help people to brand and to interpret their brands. So in a sense, we've become chameleons to the brand. For working with individuals, a private residence, it's, uh, you're working very tightly with a family or, you know, or a couple or what, whatever it is, or a single person. And you're interpreting, you're a kind of interpreter, you're a listener. 
I liken it almost to being a good travel guide, that, you know, a good travel guide takes you to places that you've heard about, but then they take you to places that they, you haven't heard about, that they want to show you, you know? And that's, I feel we, we're kind of travel guides. Yeah, but it's all informed by having done the active listening and observing. So you're taking some place they may not know about, but that you intuit that they would want exactly. to go to. Exactly. And we do when we're traveling, if we're going to a new job that's out of, say, Manhattan or a big city, we do what we call dry sponge, wet sponge in the studio. We get on a flight and we fly over dry sponges and we soak up the environments and soak up everything and and come back wet sponges you know, and then squeeze squeeze that out onto the onto the work. <laughs> <laughs> because if you're doing a hotel, for instance, in a in a in a country, you you want to get the contextual references, everything, the music, you listen to the music, go to Portugal, we listen to Fado, we go to the museums, we go out on a farm, we get trying to get it, you know, what is this? So it's a hotel, if somebody's traveling there, you don't want to jump down a box, a perfectly functioning box that doesn't relate to the uh, contextually to the country it's been built in. We rootle out weavers and painters and we do art consulting, so we try to get get local artists honored by putting them in the project. That's beautiful. It makes the, maybe even the hotel feel porous. I mean, porous in that it is breathing with the locale. That's a nice way of putting it. Often at an opening, uh, we have the artists, the local artists come and stand in front of their work. You know, We did a spa in a hotel in Pennsylvania where we did that. They aren't, each artist stood in front of their art. I'm happy to hear that. That's beautiful. I have a real affection for artisans and craftspeople of all calibers. You mentioned that you've buried buckets of crystals in the earth on job sites. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you assess the land or the site needs a bit of energy healing? I try to use feng shui, a feng shui master, and a, and a biogeometrist on each project. What's biogeometry? It's it, it's an ancient Egyptian method of assessing what the waves are coming from from the earth, you know, and what's toxic or non toxic. But it's the same as feng shui. It's really it's it's all about energy. I walk into a place sometimes, and I don't feel it's a happy place. Hmm. Yeah, I know that feeling. It's awful. It's very claustrophobic. and Yeah, it's, sometimes there's a darkness that, that comes, you know. Since I'm open to everything, I, I guess I pick it up. I remember we were given a basement to design for somebody, and uh, I could barely breathe in there, and it turned out that three people had hanged themselves in there. Oh, wow. But when our feng shui master came in, and you could actually feel the energy peeling away, and you know, and it was lo- it was lovely to actually experience that. It's happened to me on a couple of jobs where I've been there when the ceremony was happening, or and the and the items were being put in, and you can actually it's tangible. I think what I'm trying to say here, we're trying to make the invisible tangible, the air, the energy but good energy, tangible. I hear you. That makes sense. Because it's so ineffable, it's something that a lot of people don't know how to put words around. But I've definitely been in spaces where I could tell there was a darkness, a a real heaviness, a real uncomfortable energy. And it 
I didn't have a reason for it because it would be like one hotel room in a whole hotel. And so I'd switch to a different hotel room and the energy was different. And so I'm wondering, conversely, I'm sure you've been in spaces where the energy felt magical or where there was a a deep sense of almost sacredness, like baked into the site or the even the walls of a longstanding structure. Are there times then when you seek to preserve energy as well, like or not disturb it? It's it's just there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Don't have to do anything. I still might have my feng shui master or biogeometry guy just assess some of the areas around it. But I've gone to places that that I really felt incredibly happy. I mean, does that inform your decision not to move walls and things or no? Sometimes. Yeah, it does sometimes. With so many projects so diverse, in terms of their output from branding to commercial to residential. And also we have a licensing division and art consulting. Yeah. How do you and how do you in the studio, how do you measure success? How do you know when you're onto it and when it's going to turn out the way you want it to, or even after the project is completed, you can measure the impact? Well, we've been told that uh, some of our multifamily buildings the units sell and rent much faster than what they call the competition. I don't believe in competition. I'm like Rudolf Nureyev. He said, I'm always trying to dance better than myself. (laughs) Is it on your quote wall? It's on my quote wall. I have one quote that I try to read at least once a week. The ancient Egyptians believed that upon death, they would be asked two questions, and their answers would determine whether they could continue to their journey in the afterlife. The first question was, did you bring joy? The second was, did you find joy? And that always makes me teary when I when I read it. I felt I felt that. It's like that that, that little monk Thinathan, he said if you meet somebody in the street and you feel happier after you've met them, that they've handed you some happiness. It also really, really prioritizes the most important thing, doesn't it? It just so clearly being in in the giving and receiving cycle of joy. Exactly, exactly. One of my mottos is to give something away every day. And it, it sounds difficult, but actually it's very easy. <laughs> There's always something. <laughs> what, what have you given away today? What have I given today? Giving my time to you. <laughs> no, yes, no. and sharing your story with me. This is joyful. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. So if you don't mind, I would love to ask you a few questions that are kind of not work-related, but are a little bit more about the wisdom that you have having lived your exceptional life. You had a father that sounds like you weren't very close with and who was willing to cut you out of his life. Two husbands, one who sought to rein you in or was maybe of a of a more conservative mindset. And then another one that long glorious marriage, it sounds like, proved to be an ally in your self-actualization. And you've raised three sons. Not only that, but you've built careers during times when it was still considered very trailblazing for women to be as entrepreneurial and head of the shop as you were and are. And famously, Cloda, with no last name, no surname that's attached to a man. Well, I can explain that one. When you have your exam, when you're leaving pre-college exam, you do it in a hall, in this case in Dublin, where students from various schools who are up for the exam, the leaving certificate, are sitting all around you. And there was a balcony in the hall. There were some teachers sitting up there, people who were running the show for the exam and monitoring it. And they called out our names, and they said, push your hand up when your name is called. Are you ready for this? Cloda Fanula Maeve the Sillery Phipps. I resolved there and then I would only have one name for the rest of my life. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel my blush now. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> my question around all this sort of all these male figures in your life is, I'm wondering if you've given much thought to how your personal and professional spirit and success and all of the the volume of work and joy that is in the wake of all that you're doing, all of your creativity. I'm wondering if you've given much thought to how it's rippled out through the patriarchal framework of society and reorganized it a little bit or made lasting impacts. I think it's hard to say, but I, I do deal with many or more male clients as I female clients. But I think it's all shifted and changed in the States, particularly. I mean, I, I was brought up Irish Protestant, you know. Nothing is more uptight. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think the guys are a little daunted sometimes by female success, but I, I, that's changing. I feel that men are more respectful of financial success. I would go so far as to say that more likely to listen to you and take you seriously and and maybe even take orders from you to give you the credit of your credibility. But maybe if I just invented that, I don't know. By the way, I love the guys. <laughs> I, I had all boys, you know. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the things why I brought that up is because it's not love it or hate it kind of situation. It's much more glorious and complex, the sort of movement of the universe and 
the male-female dynamic sort of trying to seek balance. And we're the production units of society. We're the production units of, of humanity. So does it feel safe to claim your feminine power and legacy? You've certainly earned it. Does it feel safe? Uh, totally. I don't feel that I have to claim them. That I think they're just there. I, I do think a lot about women being the production units of humanity. You know, the amount of time that it takes to, to make a baby and then bring up the baby and all that stuff. There's that secondary line of work that women have that men don't have. It's the babysitters and all the stuff we go through. Do you have grandchildren? I have grandchildren, and I've got a great-granddaughter. My youngest son married very young, and I have a great-great-granddaughter in Australia, actually. She's three. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, and I had all my babies before I was 27, so. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was a very young grandmother. You've taken a lot of leaps of faith throughout your life. Some of them, you've said, were out of sheer ignorance. Yes. You laugh, but it's true. No, I believe it. But, I mean, some people don't have the same instinct as you do to to leap without looking. I'm wondering what you attribute that to. Like deep down, does it come from a kind of faith or a kind of intuition or trust in yourself? Or, or are you actually maybe even running from something and need to escape? I think that um, when you're the smallest child and you're a child of older parents, you're on your own a lot. You have to figure it out on your own, basically. So that's you just got really comfortable figuring things out. That makes a lot of sense to me. Well, yeah, I really didn't have any option. When you have that sort of mindset and toolkit, I think it would build trust in yourself that you could get yourself into situations and still figure it out. Yeah. If I got a, got a, a job, I was just talking the other day that I, I would love to design a prison because I think that we would help the, the society a lot if we made pr prisons more he healing spaces. I 100% agree. Cloda, you have to do that. I'd love to. I think that's amazing. I think we need it. I think especially in the United States, well, I don't know about any other countries, but the incarceration system is not humane. It's not humane, and I think that that we could heal people while they're in jail if it, if it's you know it's that there's ways of doing things. No, but seriously, if incarcerated folks were their humanity was honored, their places were designed for comfort and to appeal to their senses and to acknowledge that their their comfort and care matters and that they're worthy of that. I think that the prison system could honestly have a much better impact on redemption and helping people find real purpose in their life after prison. And it could be very healing. I wish that I was president and I could put you in charge of this right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do think it's a good idea because if you're not acknowledged... If you're just become a pawn, you know, in a system, something's got to go wrong. Have you ever had an inkling? Like, do you know what you will be in your next life or what you'd like to be in your next life? I haven't. I'm so busy in this one. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, maybe you'd like to take more breaks in the next one. <laughs> no. I do think that this, I would change the schooling system a bit and the prison system in my next life, given a chance. Actually, teach 
I, I think that people aren't taught at school, you know, that there's all the dirty words. They're not, you know, they're not, they're not taught sex properly. And then they, and suddenly you can't have an abortion. And they're all the dirty words that uh, people don't use, you know. They're not taught about their system or how necessarily nutrition. I think we could have a healthier, happier society if, if it all this stuff was taught you when you're, you know, when you're still little, when you can t- really take it in. <laughs> no. So somehow teaching, I think, would be part of my next life, ideally, some kind of teaching. Not me teaching, but but, but uh, helping, helping a system. Designing a, a more fruitful and generative and healthy education system. Yes. I can see With, you doing that. And make people laugh more often. yes very important well i can honestly say in this conversation that i found joy and you brought joy and so thank you so much cloda for sharing your your story and your life with me this has been really really rich thank you and i hope i'll meet you on the other side of the computer screen one day you are a magical force and i feel blessed to have to have shared this time with you. Thank thank you you so much. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Cloda, including images of her work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them. It really helps us out when you share Clever with your friends. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss a thing. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Visit surroundpodcasts.com to discover more of the architecture and design industry's premier shows.